This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. It's about that time of the year when your garden may be looking lush or a little sad. And with this weekend's heat wave hitting a large swath of the U.S., it's getting harder to keep plants alive. But keeping a garden is shown to have many benefits beyond beautifying your space. Research from the University of Colorado Boulder found that people who started gardening not only experienced decreased levels of stress and anxiety, but it also reduced the risk of chronic diseases. Gardening may be good for the body and soul, but it can also be frustrating. Do you have a stubborn plant that isn't happy no matter where you put it? Or a mysterious fungus that's decided to take over your plants? Well, after the break, you'll hear from a group of expert gardeners. We've assembled them to answer all your planting questions and help set you on the right track to make your backyard garden dreams come true, or at least try. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Now let's jump into all things gardening. Mike McGrath is with us. He's the host of the public broadcasting TV and radio show, You Bet Your Garden. Mike, it's great to have you. It is great to be here. I look forward to solving Many problems today, maybe (laughs) even some of my own. (laughs) Also with us is Felder Rushing, a horticulturist and host of the Gestalt Gardener on Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Felder, welcome. Glad to be here. And Melinda Myers is the author of more than 20 gardening books. She's also the host of Melinda's Garden Moment TV and radio program, and she's the instructor for the great courses, How to Grow Anything. Melinda, it's great to have you. Oh, excellent to be here. Talk gardening with some of my fellow horticulturists and all your listeners as well. Okay, Mike, let's start with this extreme weather the U.S. is experiencing right now. Southwestern states are being hit with intense heat. Phoenix, Arizona reached 15 consecutive days at 110 degrees or above. Vermont is still reeling from historic flooding. You've been giving gardening advice for years now. How often are you getting calls about dealing with gardens and a changing climate? Not that often, although it's an undercurrent of almost every question, uh, because the plants are definitely being stressed. Now, I think we should point out that people in southern Florida, Arizona, especially Phoenix, Las Vegas, uh, this is new to them only by a couple of degrees. They know that the best thing to do in summer is to crawl like eight feet under the sand and wait until things cool down a little bit. So they're used to gardening in the off season. Um, Street trees, plants like that, they do notice the two or three degree or four degree difference. And, you know, it's, it's nature. It's, there's not 
much that you can do. You can't fight nature. She always bats last. Well, well, to that end, we got this question from a member of our text club. I need advice adjusting to climate change. The soil isn't as it was and the water isn't available. We build our soil first, but drought tolerance is going to be important in the next 10 years. Transitioning these spaces will take 10 years anyway. Thoughts? Melinda, let's go to you on this one. What do you tell people who are trying to figure out how to garden in extreme weather conditions? You know, and I think it's so important as gardeners, we can have an impact. And I think building the soil is important. And good gardeners know good soil is the foundation. Compost is excellent. It's a great way to recycle that plant waste into something good and nutritious. A lot of research shows that adding compost helps the soil retain moisture. All those microorganisms help feed the soil, help correct a lot of the problems that we create. So your your, call, your emailer is correct. We need to build good soil soil, mulching, you know, adding a layer of shredded leaves, evergreen needles or pine straw for our southern garden friends, and uh, shredded bark and wood chips helps to conserve moisture, suppresses weeds, so you get lots of benefits. As it breaks down, it improves the soil, and it also moderates soil temperature. So they've done research showing that bare soil is a lot hotter, and so by covering it with plants or with mulch, in this case, you protect the soil, but keep those roots cool and moist. So those are a couple things we can do from a heat standpoint to help our plants. Uh, Let's go to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from one of you. Hello, my name is Hallie and I live in Tucson, Arizona. And right now the garden's not going so great. With weather reaching 114 degrees, I actually question whether I should have a garden during the summer or if not switch to more native plants that can at least survive. Okay, Felder, as someone who gardens in the South, what do you say to people dealing with triple-digit heat? I mean, is a garden just out of reach at this point? Well, you know, we've we've been dealing with this for a long time. And like Mike said, the folks in the, in the desert Southwest are, are used to it. You know, it's a matter of, of, of not a whole lot of degrees. Uh, a lot of the plants that we have trouble with have, it's not so much the, the daytime temperatures, but they don't cool down at night. Uh, so, like Melissa said, mulch will help a lot, but choosing good plants. You know, you go to the botanic gardens, you know, anywhere in the southwest, and they're going to have areas dedicated to the very best plants that do well without a lot of artificial life support. So, it's a more, more uh, choosing good plants, keeping them mulched, and not too wet. Believe it or not, too wet can be a problem for plants in hot, hot weather. If you're trying to figure out the right native plants that may be best for where you live, for the climate you're in, what's a good way to figure that out? Well, first and foremost is check with the Extension Service. In the past 10, 15, 20 years, their publications have gotten a whole lot more state-centric. But also botanic gardens, local master gardener groups, any kind of of, uh, organization is going to have lists or demonstration gardens with the plants that do the best. They may be kind of boring to some people because they're old-fashioned, but they're old-fashioned and boring because they work. They may not be the latest or the greatest, but there's some great standbys no matter what part of the country you're from. Now, Melinda, we've been talking about extreme heat, but other people are dealing with flooding. If you're growing produce and there's a flood, but your your garden survives, is it safe to eat that produce once the water recedes? 
You know, um, one of the hardest things, the safest things to do is to discard anything that was covered with flood water. Not only is we don't know what's in that water, you know, even if it's clear, there might be contaminants. So if your fruit or, um, you know, anything, especially leafy crops that really contain that, the safest thing is to get rid of anything that was covered with flood water. But if that um, wasn't touched by flood water, there were floods around, your garden was high, raised bed, you do want to rinse and clean it off. You want to sanitize a one tablespoon of bleach per gallon of water. That's if it wasn't touched with the flood water. And then you want to make sure that you consider testing your soil as well, whether it's um, smoke from wildfires or it's flood water. There's contaminants that could be in there that we're not aware of. And having your soil tested, you want to wait um, um, if anything's like flowering and fruiting after the floodwaters recede, so let's say your tomatoes, I'm in the north, it's a great way. If it's after the floodwaters, then it'd be okay, but still clean it up. But make sure, safest thing, discard, and next year will always be better, hopefully. We're discussing all things gardening and plants, and we'll be back with more of your questions in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Let's get back to the conversation. Melinda, we have a follow-up about the safety of produce. Rolf in Wisconsin says, I live in northern Wisconsin where we have all sorts of wild berries and our own gardens. What do we know about research that would indicate whether or not wild berries in garden produce is safe to eat when every week we're getting warnings about particulate in the air? And you, and you touch on this briefly, Melinda, but what more can you tell us? You know, there's a good research out. The University of Minnesota had some good information, especially for those of us feeling some of the wildfire fire smoke coming through from Canada into Wisconsin and Minnesota and, and the Midwest as well. And one of the things about that is rinsing it off, you know, being safe and careful with your own health. You know, you may want to wear a mask. Rinse off any produce. If it's damaged, it's safest not to use it. But any of those soft things, berries, things that are intact, rinsing them off outside in the so you leave a lot of that ash behind then bringing it inside and then rinsing it off again um, several times so that you bring that get rid of any of that ash and those types of things because we're not sure what all's in that air you know is it just plant debris that's burned or is it you know buildings and other things with building materials it may not be safe then you want to use a 10 percent white vinegar solution 
because that's going to help get any particular out of things that have lots of crevices, lettuce and things like that. Um, again, one of the things that you may want to consider is a soil test. Um, a lot of extension service, there's a lot of information out of California and Oregon where you know they've been subjected to wildfires much more readily in that smoke than some of us in other parts of the country. So Rinsing it off, being safe and healthy. Um, if in doubt, discard it. Um, you don't want to throw it in the compost pile as much as I'm a fan of composting. Peeling your apples, pulling the skin off the tomatoes, peeling your root crops. I know there's a lot of nutrient value in there, but you know, at this case, if you're concerned about any of that particulate sticking to it, the safest thing is rinse it rinse it a couple more times inside, then use the vinegar solution at 10%, and that's going to help. And then if you're concerned that you've had a lot of settling, especially depending on the part of the country you're from, talk to your extension service. They can help connect you to somebody. They may even do some of the soil testing for heavy metals that may have been in that contamination, whether it's flood water or smoke from wildfires. Here's a message we got from Ken in Cincinnati. It's about the pests he's fighting. Uh, I have uh, continued problems with Japanese beetles. They just love to attack my cannas. Um, I keep them in pots, and um, they grow very nicely. And just in the past uh, couple of weeks, um, they've reared their ugly heads again. They swarm my cannas and um, uh, uh, dig holes into the leaves, attack the blossoms, I have applied a, um, a granular material into the dirt. I think that's helped. I've done that a couple of times. And then when the uh, beetles emerge, and prior to that, I'll squirt uh, liquid seven on them. And that seems to help, but they always just seem to come back. Uh, any suggestions? Okay, Ken is not the only one with Japanese beetle issues. We've got a text from someone where the Japanese beetles are eating their roses and emails. I have Japanese beetles attacking my plants. I live in Northeast Ohio. It's very annoying. Felder, any advice? Well, we have them in Mississippi too, in Alabama, Louisiana. Japanese beetles. Uh, and, and by the way, I could just see Mike's hair standing up over <laughs> over, over, over springs from the stuff. You know, when you when you spray these large beetles, even with a with a, with a chemical insecticide, they keep eating until they drop dead. So it's it's really hard to control it with just even natural sprays can 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 be difficult on these. So uh, other than treating for the grubs, you know, which it's just, it's, just a, it's a terrible. It's a terrible task, and I don't know how effective it is. Mostly what we do is we carry around a bucket of soapy water and just drop them in a bucket and move on. But they are serious problems. If you are going to use some kind of insecticide, uh, I'd rather see you use it late in the evening after the pollinators have left. But uh, it's just uh, that's one of those things where all three of us, uh, Melinda and Mike and I, we sort of shrub your shoulders and say, I wish we didn't have them in our gardens. Hmm. So it's just a matter of trying to delicately remove them from your plants because that sounds like the most effective, though time-consuming, process. Here's another issue a lot of people brought up, and that's deer. One text member uh, writes, if I could get rid of the deer population, the garden would be just fine. Don't let anyone tell you that there are deer-resistant plants. Deer eat anything, and a fence isn't practical for everyone. And another of you writes, I have a deer problem. They constantly ravage my flowers and tomatoes, even after spraying with deer-repellent products. Any suggestions? Now, Melinda, this is one that's close to my heart. My parents kept a prolific garden for years 
until one summer, a herd of deer that lived in the area just came through and they ate the entire garden overnight. It was just gone. And my parents just kind of gave up after that. So how how do we deal with deer? You know, it is frustrating. Um, I live out in the country now. I lived in the city, but we even had them coming in through the greenways in the city yeah. area, munching on plants. And fencing is the most effective, not always practical. Even a five-foot fence, if it's a small garden, tends to keep them out. So that is an option. Make sure the gate's secure. Also good for keeping those rabbits that like to eat your produce. I'm with this person on resistant plants because I can look at any list and I'm like, I know gardeners have told me those deer ate those plants as well. So I feel their pain. If you use repellents, one of the things to consider is if you spray before they start eating. So if you know deer are a problem and you know their favorite plant, you know, in spring, they love the tulips. Treating your tulips as the leaves emerge before they start munching on those flowers. And the same with your vegetables, treating before, making sure it's labeled for food crops. That's something you can do. I've had gardeners tell me they've had good luck with the uh, um, thing that's sold as Scarecrow. It's a motion-sensitive sprinkler. There's probably lots of different brand names. And it's set off by motion, so it surprises the deer. Other gardeners have had good success using fishing lines. So they'll put decorative posts and then run fishing line every two feet around their garden bed. So it's not obtrusive. It's affordable. And um, a lot of gardeners, it kind of sends them to the neighbors. Sorry for the neighbors, but away from your garden and down the road to someone else. And that might be effective. Um, so always check if you do repellents before they start eating, you'll have the greatest success. Look for things that are rain resistant so that you're not applying it as often. And you may want to say, you know what, I'm going to treat my key plants or my treat around the vegetable garden. And then I may have to sacrifice a few things, a few blossoms that the deer can eat along the edge. Some people even plant a hedge that will kind of keep the deer out, but give them something to munch on as they move along through the neighborhood. You know, a lot of people are really concerned about what non-toxic pest methods work, especially ones that keep pollinators safe. One text member writes, even with organic gardening, finding the right balance between pest control and companion planting can be very frustrating. For instance, I can put out a dish of light beer for the slugs to drown in. However, it draws in other unwanted pests. Marigolds and basil are supposed to be a natural deterrent, and yet they get eaten faster than anything in my garden. Aside from endives, some herbs, and a few tiny tomatoes, our yield has been quite paltry in comparison to the time and money invested into, quote, doing it right. For the weekend gardener, is it a losing battle? So, Mike, we've got a fresh Frustrated gardener there. Any any guidance or encouragement you have for them? Yeah, weekend gardeners have the worst job, especially if it means specifically, you know, that they're they're in the city working uh, during the week and then they go out to a country house uh, because eyes on the prize. I mean, the most important thing in organic gardening is a visual walkthrough of the garden every day. So you catch these things before uh, they get out of control. Uh, But going back to Japanese beetles and directly answering this question, uh, there is a new form of BT. We're not gonna go into Bacillus thuringiensis and the different strains, but there is a new strain called BTG for Galleria and you spray it on plants and the beetles eating it die. It doesn't affect anything else. 
birds can eat the dead beetles, toads can eat the dying beetles in their throes of agony. It only affects members of the scarab beetle family who are chewing on leaves. So like a butterfly could land on the leaves and it wouldn't be affected because it's not eating. Um, I, I'm really happy with BTG. There's also a form that you can apply to your lawn to kill the beetle grubs underground. Going back to a previous caller, don't ever use seven or other things. I've, I've had so many people tell me, oh, seven is a combination of seven uh, natural ingredients. And I go, no, it's cancer on a stick. Why are you gardening? Why are you growing your own food if you're poisoning it first? Deer, uh, Melinda's suggestions were all fabulous. I love motion-activated sprinklers. But there's another product out there that uses that aspect of give the deer a bad taste early in the season, and they won't come back. And it's a product called the Wireless Deer Fence. This is American intuition. A guy started making them in his garage. He's still the salesman. Um, you send him, you know, you get, go to wirelessdeerfence.com. You get three of these stakes to put in the ground uh, for, I think, 60 bucks. They come with scent pellets that attract the deer. Um, so you put the scent pellet around inside these electrodes, put a couple of batteries in the belly of the beast, and put it at the outskirts of your garden. When the deer come up, they'll go to that scent pellet first. They'll get a mild shock when they try to lick it. And then, yes, they will go eat the neighbor's rhododendrons. Well, we, we will have to take that up with the neighbors, who I'm sure will be less than happy about that suggestion. Recently, there's been quite a debate about lawns and whether sustaining traditional grass yards are good for the environment. So we'll get into some more eco-friendly lawn ideas, maybe ones that can help fill your fridge. We'll be back with more of your questions in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear... It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. Let's get back to the discussion and turn to lawns. Melinda, I wanted to get to that issue of lawns and whether sustaining what we think of as a yard, right, these fields of green, whether that makes sense for the environment or whether there's a more eco-friendly approach we can we can take that might actually put some things in our fridge. You know, I think there are a lot of people revisiting lawn care. 
there are the lawn enthusiasts, and they'll always be there. It's the backdrop for your garden, flower beds, and things like that. Great place to play. But I think we're rethinking about the perfect lawn. Is it just green enough to keep our feet from getting muddy? Can we instead put ground covers that are more tolerant of the weather conditions where you live so they require less inputs once established? They compete less for our trees and shrubs for water and nutrients, so it's better for those plantings as well. If you are going to grow a lawn, growing it tall, depending on the grass. You know, I'm in the north, so we do lots of bluegrass and fine fescues. Fescues tend to be more drought tolerant. We can leave our lawns go dormant. If you choose to have a lawn, leave it go dormant and then just water maybe a quarter of an inch every three weeks if we're having a long-term dry spell. Um, if you leave your clippings on the lawn, you're adding a season's worth of clippings equals a pound of actual nitrogen. So that's one fertilization. So if you want lawns, you can, draw, you can take care of them more eco-friendly growing them tall, leaving the clippings, using electric mowers, or better yet, burn calories and use a push mower if it's a small area, and then decreasing the size of your lawn. And then look for alternatives. A lot of people are looking for more native plants. University of Minnesota has a great bee-friendly lawns, and they talk about you know, those wild violets that we get irritated with are great for the pollinators. Um, there's uh, prunella, a plant that has flowers that will help the, with the pollinators early in the season. A lot of small space gardeners are growing vegetables. I lived in the city for 30 years and I had just a little strip of grass to make my neighbors comfortable with my front yard. And instead I had flowers, herbs, some vegetables tucked in with a few dwarf conifers. And I had a beautiful landscape, very very non-traditional, and it took my neighbors a while to appreciate it, but it was so much better for the environment. It captured the rainfall, kept it where it fell. My plants benefited. The water didn't end up in the storm sewer, less grass to deal with. I could cut my grass with my electric mower faster than I could get it out of the garage to the front yard. (laughs) Well, that echoes what we heard from one of our listeners who says, I used to simply garden, then I started pollinator gardening, then I moved up to bird gardening. Gardening with a broader purpose has enhanced the enjoyment of gardening for me. Let's go to Ken in New York. Ken, you're, you're dealing with the wisteria tree. What's going on? Uh, it's a plant. It's not a tree, and it's very healthy, but it's uh, never bloomed, never produced flowers. And uh, it's uh, 27 years old. Uh, I bought it from a nursery. Um, I know I was looking for a white uh, wisteria, one that produces white flowers, but I don't remember whether I was able to find one or not. It's probably a wisteria that's supposed to produce purple flowers. Felder, any ideas about why this might not be blooming? Well, a couple of things. This is fairly common with wisteria, which is a legume. It makes its own fertilizer, and it also seems to do best in miserable conditions, roadsides, for example. And so it's a good chance that, that his wisteria has got roots in a lawn that's been fertilized, it's in really good soil. Or for, for some reason, it's getting more energy, more f- nutrient, more water than it needs. So one of the things he could try would be to go out from the, from the trunk of it, uh, four, five, six, maybe 10 feet, and make a few cuts with a shovel, which, which cuts a few of the roots, and it stresses the plant, which actually kicks. Uh, there's a hormone called traumatin that when a plant is injured, it's, it kicks it into a flowering mode. So if, it's, if he's fertilizing anywhere near there or there's an irrigation system, anything like that, it's going to make the plant want to grow better. So, hey, but can, can I touch a little bit on the, the lawn issue real quick, sure, if you don't mind? Sure, sure. 
you know this this uh, it, it it Melissa was spot on about about all the things you could do to have a, a healthy lawn without really doing a lot. But when I was a kid, we didn't really use a lot of chemicals and stuff on our lawns, and we had what I call a mow it grow lawn with the with the clovers. We wore flip flops because of stickers and honeybees and things. And right now, there's a huge trend. I, I live in England part of the year uh, for the past. 14 or 15. And over here, lawns are not treated so much like wall-to-wall carpet like we do. They have throw rugs of lawn. And it's possible, even if you have a large landscape and with a big lawn, to have a smaller, kind of a throw rug effect, like a like a putting green on a on a golf course that you can maintain and then have the rest sort of a second tier, just an old-fashioned mowat grows type lawn. When, what uh, what do you mean a, by mow it grows? I'm not familiar. Just, just, just mow it. Don't worry about it. If, you know, if it, if it grows, mow it, whether it's okay. clover or dandelions <laughs> or prunella or, or the violets. Uh, and, 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 you know, if you, ta- if you look at it at an angle, it's like the roadsides. They're not 100% lawn, but they look okay. So here's the, the deal, though. I, I reject this, this approach they have towards the so-called meadow lawn because most folks don't want a, a meadow. They want a lawn. So we're looking for plants to stay just a few inches tall and tolerate regular mowing like clover and the violets. Uh, and if you want to get started with this and the neighbors object and you don't live in a HOA where they require you to, to have a nice lawn, plant a few of the low-growing daffodils like tete-a-tete or grape hyacinths and get the neighbors used to having something other than lawn out there and then just basically do what we've been doing for centuries and if it gets too tall just mow it and don't worry about whether it's 100 percent european or asian turf type grasses so an eco-friendly lawn can be uh, you can actually put a little sign out there saying bee crossing mm. or pollinator lawn something to let the neighbors know you're doing this on purpose instead of not taking care of your quote quote industrial lawn we got this message from Johnny in South Carolina. Yes, hi. Thanks for uh, taking my call. I have five mature dogwoods that are maybe 20 plus, 30 years old, and three very young ones, uh, about four years old. One of the mature ones is uh, dying, I could only say that. It had two trunks, and one trunk, all of the uh, branches had no leaves or no blooms, so I cut that double trunk off. But the other side, the leaves are very small. They um, they didn't broaden out like the normal dogwood uh, leaves do. The ends of them started getting yellow and brown, and now with the heat, um, you know, the ends are burning. But it started way back in the spring. There were blooms on them, but um, the leaves never came out as the way I wanted them to, or the way I had in the past. Okay, so you you're mostly concerned about the one that's struggling, and, and you're not quite sure what the problem is. Yeah, that's right. Right. All the others are doing great. Okay, Mike, any thoughts about what might be happening with that one dogwood tree? Uh, Yeah, now we're back to your first question about climate change. Um, There have been some striking and unsettling papers out of universities explaining how landmark trees, trees that are associated with their states, are no longer able to thrive there because the conditions have changed so dramatically. Now, dogwoods have always been um, a little funky to grow. Um, They have serious needs and they're not afraid to show you that they're not getting those needs. Uh, Dogwoods, you know, it's that old line in gardening. People say, "How, how can you do that? 
but dogwoods need afternoon shade. They need morning sun so that they can develop their flowers. Um, but in the afternoon, just as this gentleman described, they're broiling, they're cooking out there. Um, and I believe he probably has anthracnose, uh, which is a very common disease on dogwoods. I don't believe that there is any cure. And one thing I learned about my own garden is rather than try to save everything out there, it looks better when you get rid of it. Most gardeners with our experience have too many plants out there. You can't see any of them. But if you start selectively removing ones that you're bored with or they're problematic, it really opens things up. And now you can show off your plants better. So um, I really do recommend taking this dogwood down, or if it's one of the big ones, having that done professionally, because um, you really want to prevent the spread of the anthracnose to your other ones. And also compost, compost, compost. Make sure the surviving trees have a good two-inch mulch of compost starting again around four to six inches away from the trunk. You never want to volcano mulch a tree. I don't care how many people do it. But the compost is a natural disease preventer. It will also cool the soil, which could be the difference between survival and disease in this case. We also heard from Bell, who says, I've planted cherry tomatoes for several years in an elevated garden with great success. This year, however, I've got lots of yellow blooms, but they never turn into tomatoes. And Gwen emails, can it be too hot to grow tomatoes? I'm in Washington, D.C. and haven't had much success recently. Melinda, give us the rundown on, on tomatoes. Well, they're very sensitive to temperatures. Um, I think it was Felder mentioned something about night temperatures. Pollen is, is affected by humidity and temperature. So when we have really hot nights, hot days, but especially hot nights, or if you're a northern gardener, cooler temperatures that eventually come during harvest season, that can affect not only the flowering and fruiting, but the pollen needed to pollinate those flowers. So always going to the University Extension Service in your area, selecting those tomatoes suited to the climate. We can't change the weather, but we can you know, realize it will get better, hopefully, as we reach some cooler temperatures later in the summer. Sometimes it's about timing. Um, I'm in the north, and so a lot of times I don't get my tomatoes in until early July, early June. And so I'm just starting to get fruit now. But we've had some heat, and so I'm expecting to see things to slow down until we get cooler temperatures. So it's a matter of patience. Blossom set can help. You'll have smaller tomatoes. Doesn't work on peppers. They're very sensitive, too. So the right tomato variety, hoping weather cooperates, which we can't control, keeping the plants healthy otherwise. Don't give up. Usually as the you know temperatures adjust to what the plants like or the plants um, start performing what the way you want them, you'll be successful. I use a lot of row covers. They're fabrics that let air, light, and water through. So if my tomatoes start setting fruit late in the season, frost is in the forecast. I pinch out the growing tips of the indeterminates 
Those are ones that continue to flower and fruit throughout the season. But I'll cover my tomatoes with this fabric that protects them from the frost. So if I have a late fruit set because of the hot summer temperatures, I still have a good harvest. And you can ripen green tomatoes indoors. Not as tasty, but it's one way to beat the squirrels and the chipmunks that like to take one bite out of them, right? And finish ripening them inside. So, you know, it's it's frustrating because there's nothing better than a tomato. A good tomato, right? Off yeah. The plant, right? Yeah. We've been talking to Felder Rushing. He's a horticulturalist and host of the Gestalt Gardener on Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Also with us, Melinda Myers. She's the host of more than 20, or the author, rather, of more than 20 gardening books. And she hosts Melinda's Garden Moment TV and radio program. She's also the instructor for the great courses, How to Grow Anything. And Mike McGrath is the host of the public broadcasting TV and radio show, You Bet Your Garden. Mike, Felder, Melinda, thank you all for hopefully making our gardens and plants a little bit greener. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Get to growing people. And we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.